0: Chase Mobile App is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A., Member FDIC. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and five G connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with Location Telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. Musora is your access to online music lessons for guitar, piano, drums, and singing. You know, Just go to musora.com, M-U-S-O-R-A.com to start a new musical journey today.
1: I loved last week's episode with Fred Vogelstein about the power of Facebook. Let me know what you thought by tweeting me, at BethanyMac12. This is Making a Killing, the show that cuts through the hype and noise to reframe the stories you thought you understood and uncover the ones you didn't know were important. It was an indelible image. In 2009, Matt Taibbi, the Rolling Stone writer, did a piece on Goldman Sachs in which he described the firm as a great vampire squid wrapped around the face of humanity, relentlessly jamming its blood funnel into anything that smells like money. Wow. You might argue that that same description applies to the larger financial world, perhaps more now than ever. In her book, Makers and Takers, Rana Faruhar has some stunning statistics. She wrote that as of June 2017, finance holds a disproportionate amount of power in our society. It's just 7% of our economy, but it takes 25% of all corporate profit while creating only 4% of jobs. Takers, indeed. The core of Rana's idea is that finance, instead of facilitating business, has metastasized into something else entirely, it's become the tail wagging the dog. I guess that's nicer than vampire squid, right? This actually isn't a new worry. As Rana recounts, back in 1984, a guy named James Tobin, then a member of the Federal Reserve's Board of Governors, warned about the, quote, casino aspect of our financial markets. His key worry was that trading had become an end in and of itself, rather than a facilitation of business. This decades-old worry, of course, erupted in the 2008 financial crisis. But since then, well, what? Big banks have gotten even bigger. And more importantly, I think our society is restive. Even billionaires are worried. Take Ray Dalio, the founder and CEO of Bridgewater, one of the world's largest hedge funds. He wrote recently, I believe that all good things taken to an extreme become self-destructive and that everything must evolve or die. This is now true for capitalism. The Wall Street Journal wrote that Dalio's essay was quote, inspired by a long-standing interest in the parallels between the 1930s and the present, the growth of debt, the widening of inequality, and the rise of populism. Diamond, who of course is the CEO of mega bank J.P. Morgan Chase, wrote in his annual letter to shareholders, "In many ways, and without ill intent, many companies were able to avoid, almost literally, drive by." Many of society's problems. Okay, this is a wonky reference, but is anybody else out there a fan of Cloud Atlas, the 2004 book by David Mitchell, in which he invents Nea Sokopros, a dystopian future state in Korea that's derived from corporate culture? Is that where we're headed? And so I'm delighted to have Rana here. She's got a new book coming out in the fall entitled Don't Be Evil. I've admired her work for years. We're going to discuss how we got here and maybe find an answer to the very provocative and profound question she raises. What is a company for? Okay, so what do you think? Ray Dalio and Jamie Dimon are on board now (laughs) that there's a problem. All happy now?
2: Oh, gosh. Well, you know, I had such mixed feelings about both of those letters. On the one hand, great. I'm glad that two titans of finance think that yeah there's a problem with capitalism i guess i'd say little late to the party guys i know both of them i think that they're both great people and are probably very serious about the implications of this for their businesses and trying to tackle it socially Well, what I noticed, actually, in both of those letters is I don't think they were really hitting on the root causes of the problems. Both of them talked about problems in Washington, problems of partisanship. They both talked about the fact that the wealthy don't pay enough taxes. They both talked about technological disruption of middle class jobs. These are all fair things. But I would go deeper and say that actually the way in which finance itself has become the tail that wags the dog in the economy
1: is really the problem. And given that you have two guys who have made their fortunes in finance, that's probably not where they're going to go.
2: It's probably not. And, you know, I think that that gets to why we haven't seen more action, frankly, from the business community around all this yet. I, you know, when I started writing my book and really around the time of the financial crisis, when I think all of us were really plugging into, all right, something really big has just happened here and it's not just about banks, What what's going on? I remember speaking to a few business people, mostly in retail, you know, people like Howard Schultz, for example, people where, all right, your business is based on enough people being able to afford lattes. And so you feel it really quickly when there's a problem. Those kinds of folks, I think, we're starting to see it sooner
1: than people at the very pinnacle, which tend to be the finance guys. I was struck by the hearing last month where the California representative, Catherine Porter, asked Jamie Dimon how a mother with one child could survive on the bank's minimum wage, wage <laughs> that it wasn't enough to right. enable somebody to live. And Diamond responded, I don't know, I'd have to think about it.
2: Well, that's gosh, that's so telling. And it reminds me actually of a a chapter in my own book, I spoke to Mark Bertolini, who ran Aetna a few years back. And when he came into the company, it had all kinds of customer service problems. And, you know, I mean, healthcare is an issue in the US in general, but people were calling up Aetna and just having all kinds of customer relations complaints. And he's like, what's going on? And he looked around, he asked all of his division heads, give me some metrics, tell me what's what's happening. Well, he finally figured out what was happening. And that's that 75% of the people on his front lines that were picking up the phone and dealing with people like you and I that have a customer service problem were, say, single mothers on benefits, people without health care themselves. They were pissed off, and rightfully so, and they were grumpy, and they weren't doing a very good job representing the company. It's hiding in plain sight all around us. So let's back up a little bit. I want you to define financialization. Financialization is the process by which finance has become the tail that wags the dog of the larger economy. And if you go back to, say, Adam Smith, the father of modern capitalism... He would have said that finance was an industry that was really supposed to be a help meet to others. It was supposed to help other industries get the capital that they needed to start businesses, create real jobs. You know, finance is an intermediary. It's not supposed to be the end game. But in the last 40, 50 years, that's really changed. And, you know, there's been different periods of financialization in history. But in the, for the purposes of my book, I went from the late 1970s onward. And during that time, um, if you start in the 70s, you see that most of what banks are doing is lending money to the real economy. So most of their business would have been plain vanilla lending, say, giving mortgages, giving financial backing to new businesses. Today, only 15% of the money that is flowing out of the largest financial institutions is making it onto the real economy. So that then begs the question, what's the other 85% I was just doing? Say, where, is it, where is it going? <laughs> right. Well, it's going into trading, the buying and selling of assets, all the complex securities that you've written about that blew up the financial system in 2008. It's essentially a closed loop of financialization. But it goes back to this bigger question of the faults in capitalism. Because when you have an economy that's very financialized, you get a system in which it's all about bolstering asset prices, right? It's not about creating higher wages necessarily. And in fact, to many companies, it's bad for their stock price if wages go up. Investors, the street loves low wages. They love outsourcing. They love supply chains that that put things in the cheapest places. But the problem is that creates a very, very bifurcated economy. So if you look today, over 80% of the stocks in this country, of the asset base, are owned by the top 12% of the population. So if you think about how asset price inflation actually benefits the economy, it benefits just that top tier. It's not creating any changes in Main Street. And what's really interesting is over the last 40 or 50 years, as financialization has grown, as the banking sector has grown, you've gotten this sort of copycat effect where other industries— see, hey, finance is the way to go. You know, the the banks make great returns and they don't actually have the same kind of capital costs that we do and they don't have to worry about the same number of workers. Hence Apple launching a credit card. Hence Apple launching a credit card or GM having a lending business or GE becoming a too big to fail institution at one point. So I could go on and on, but you get the idea.
1: I think one of the things that's so interesting about your book is that you think about things in parallel that most people think about in isolation. Mm -hmm. And so I was thinking about that with the relationship you draw between financialization and inequality. Now, there are two things that have gone as one has increased, so has the other.
2: Right, and I think that that's so important to quote one of my FT colleagues, Jillian Tett, breaking out of silos, because these problems, these complex problems are all really interconnected. Of
0: and course. if you go
2: back to 2008, I mean, one of the problems, and if you have a moment, I'll tell you a story about how I started the book, because I think it's yeah, kind of relevant. I was sitting in a room with a former Obama administration official who'd been very intimately involved in the bailout. And it was clear that he and the whole administration, this is a few years on from 2008, they were kind of trying to wrap a bow around things, say, all right, we're done. The recovery, I put in quotation marks, has begun. Nothing to see here. But I had just done some research actually looking at how 96% of all the public consultation on some of the most contentious regulation, the the Volcker Rule, for example, that would have separated risky trading from plain vanilla lending. Let
1: let, let me guess, it all came from the banks. It
2: all came from the banks. And most of it came from the top three banks and the CEOs of those banks. You can guess who that was. So I said, how can we possibly say that we've properly re-regulated the system when the vast majority of voices in the room are from the financial sector itself? And this official looked at me with real befuddlement and said, well, who else should we have been talking to? and that's when i thought oh my gosh we ha- we are so cognitively blind here we think that we only have to talk to financiers about how to run banks. No, this is this is a social function. We need to talk to a lot of people about how to do this well.
1: Maybe that's the ultimate example of fin- financialization. That maybe it's the apex of it when the only people who are allowed to comment on it are those right. who have who those who have created it. I thought, in some ways, too, your book is this interesting history of characters and of the appropriation and misappropriation <laughs> of of ideas. And I wanted to start with with a couple of the characters I found really interesting, which are Thomas Jefferson and. Alexander Hamilton and their their opposing views of finance, right? Yeah. Which one did we end up with?
2: (laughs) Well, definitely Hamilton.
1: And this is not to say, I mean, my goodness, where to
2: start. Thomas Jefferson has plenty of his own problems, uh, certainly on the personal front and on the political front, but he was in favor of more decentralization, of more localization. And in some ways, you can sort of look at the Canadian banking system versus the U.S. banking system, and you can see the Canadian banking system is in some ways a more Jeffersonian system, that you have a lot more national banks that are localized in terms of the branches, a lot more lending on the ground, a lot more knowing your customer, separation of risky trading and lending. Hamilton, you know, he wanted uh, big financial institutions to back a big government that was going to make this new country really powerful. And he's certainly not the first one to feel that way. I mean, you know, in my book, I look a little bit at the relationship between big finance and countries, because oftentimes the financial sector in any given country gets bigger when that country is going through a period of growth. Imperialism, colonialization, this happened in the UK. That's when you started getting too big to fail banks, when the empire was growing and governments, previously kings
1: and and queens, needed larger financial institutions to back them. I love this quote from Thomas Jefferson. I believe that banking institutions are more dangerous to our liberties than standing armies. Right? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, incredibly prescient. And then there was this one I found from FDR in October of 1936. We know now that government by organized money is just as dangerous as government by organized mob. Absolutely. And so it's interesting how prescient some of our presidents have been about this problem that you that you highlight.
2: Well, yeah, and I think it gets back again to this bigger issue of wither capitalism. And, you know, looking at our politics today, looking at the democratic 2020 field and looking at the sort of age wars between the boomers and the millennials for a shrinking public pie. All of this is, I think, a reaction to the fact that there is a perception and I think a reality that not just financial institutions, but a small number of Private sector institutions in general are holding way too much wealth, and that it's not trickling down to the rest of the economy.
1: It's really interesting how the slow reverberations of the financial crisis have been, because we're a decade out, and you can argue by some metrics the economy is healthier. You can argue by some it's not. But I think the real the real cost has been to the social fabric.
2: I think that's true, and I, I, you know, I spoke to Elizabeth Warren, and one of the things she said to me is just as true today as it was, you know, four years ago when I wrote this, is. We didn't get the right narrative. We didn't say to people, you know what? we bailed out these large financial institutions, we didn't help homeowners, that hurt people. Here's what we're going to do differently. Here's how we're going to structure a financial system that will actually support Main Street. We didn't get that debate. We got a very technocratic debate about tier one capital ratios and, and, you know, risky
1: trading versus lending. And it was a debate that was so complex that really only insiders could even take part in it. And the size of our banks and relative to our economy, but also that relative to other countries, not any kind of discussion about, well, what makes sense, right? Right. <laughs>
2: Yes. And that's actually raising another interesting point, which is when you think of inequality, it's decreasing globally. It's rising within countries. That's why it's so important to talk about what's happening in countries. You know, folks that feel that the status quo system works will often point to the fact that globally, there are fewer poor people than there were 100 years ago, and that there's been so much wealth creation in China. And that's all great. But again, we don't live at 35,000 feet. We live in communities. And I think place matters. And I think that that's something that we've forgotten in
1: the last 40 years of globalization in general. Another little known fact that I thought you called it stupefying, and I think it is, is the number of people who who worried about this in advance. And among them was Ronald Reagan. So yeah. it's- <laughs> yeah. No, it's, it's amazing. I mean,
2: one of the things I loved about researching this book was figuring out This was not uh, a one-sided political story. Oftentimes you hear 80s, greed is good, Republicans are bad, liberals have their idea. But at every point in this story, there were people on both sides of of the political spectrum making good decisions and making bad decisions. And and one of the interesting facts I came up with was that Reagan— Uh, And the Reagan administration, and particularly some of the defense and security hawks within that administration, were becoming very concerned, even in the 80s, about financialization and about the insecurities that it might create competitively for the U.S. as our supply chain was outsourced. Now, that story is the front page of the paper now. It's Huawei. It's Qualcomm. It's Trump and China and the tech trade Cold War that we're engaging in, the struggle of great powers. Reagan wanted to create a kind of secret industrial policy whereby the government would look at the entire competitive landscape and say, all right, which technologies are going to be most strategic? Which patents do we need? Where are different bits of information being held in which companies, in which academic institutions, and then create literally a three-dimensional map and try and push the U.S. economy towards those strategic sectors and connect the dots. Now, can you imagine That coming out of what, you know, the guy that we think of as the uber Republican,
1: the Chicago school. The ultimate let the market rule. Exactly. It's stunning. Why why didn't it work?
2: Well, interestingly, George Bush came in and immediately deep sixed the project. It was a result of various political compromises that were being made. And again, I think this comes right back to our politics at the moment. Um, The last 40 or 50 years, part of the bargain of financialization was the U.S. saying to countries like China, if you let us ship over lots of coke and let our financial institutions come in uh, and open up your markets to our service businesses, then we're going to let you send a lot of cheap clothes and shoes and lamp fixtures over here. But there wasn't a lot of thought to what that was going to mean longer term for the industrial base. And I think there wasn't a lot of thought, too, to what the political implications would be. Folks that support these conventional ways of doing business, the kind of conventional globalization would say, hey, we don't want to be making light fixtures. We want to be financiers or programmers. The problem is you need something in between. We've Right now, we've got a country of high-level service providers and $15 an hour burger flippers and not enough in between. Uh, so I
1: want to talk a little bit about vocabulary too, because it's one of the fascinating things is that I hadn't even thought about this, but the fact that phrases like human capital have become <laughs> ubiquitous. Talk about how you thought about those things oh and when, when, when it struck you that that's actually a really weird way to think about people.
2: I started to think about it when You know, I heard some of these stories, people like Mark Bertolini at Aetna, where you have a company that's all about marshalling its cash, keeping a lot of cash on the balance sheet, not letting costs rise. And yet you have the talent sitting there, the human capital, and that's not being marshaled. That's not being invested in. That's not being monetized. I think the idea of cash being the only resource that's important in companies struck me as very odd, particularly given that. When you're living in a developed economy like the U.S., like many countries in Europe, you've got about 60 to 70 percent of your economy that's coming from consumer purchasing. If people don't have more money in their pockets, you can't run an economy that way. Now, you can create sort of saccharine fixes. You can keep very low interest rates. You can have easy monetary policy. You can have quantitative easing, as we've seen in the last few years, that will kind of create these I think, false bubbles in the market where people feel richer because maybe their price of their house is going up, although the the next housing bubble is starting to deflate. We need a whole nother podcast for that. But that's really a sugar high. That doesn't change the underlying story on Main Street. And so the fact that companies have marshaled cash but not paid any attention to human resources at a time when the world is awash in cash, there's more money out there than ever before. Central banks globally have dumped over $20 trillion into the economy
1: since 2008, but we're not investing in people. So I wanted to talk a little bit about General Electric because you have a great quote from Jack Welch about the financialization of business and he says you didn't have to invest heavily in R&D build factories and bend metal day after day he meant you can go into finance where <laughs> where did where did that
2: lead GE oh well no, we're good as we've seen uh-huh. from the headlines of the last several months it's interesting when i came into the GE story Jeff Immelt had taken over from Welch and he was actually already trying to take the company back in a different direction. So Welch had taken it over prior to, you know, for a for hundred years, GE was the great American innovator, came up with the light bulb, yeah. all these different products, big industrial company, white goods company. And then Welch came in really during the, the era of the growth of financialization and said, no, you can make more money in a much easier way by becoming a financial company. But then as we saw that came with its own risk. And I think that that's the thing that I see time and time again. Companies think that this balance sheet manipulation is great, but then it discounts the longer-term risks that might be created, not just in a company like GE, which then, of course, blew up um, and had to be rescued post-2008 and now has struggled trying to remake itself and ultimately, uh, many people would say, has failed. But you see that in other companies, too. There is an anecdote in my book that is more tragic in a way, I would say. I don't know if you remember a few years ago, there was a big disaster in Bangladesh where a fa- an outsourcing yes, factory know. for garments called Rana Plaza collapsed. And it killed close to 2,000 workers. Yes, and horrible. It was shoddy conditions, poor pay, all the usual things. Well, it turned out that that factory was making clothes for some of the world's biggest brands, and Walmart. They didn't even know. H&M, right? And they didn't even know. Now, why didn't they know? Because they had been creating cheapest, lowest common denominator supply chains that were so complex that they didn't even know ultimately who they were doing business with. Now, that came with huge, not just legal implications and financial implications, but reputational implications for those companies. And then talk
1: about the diminishment of people, right? If Indeed. That, that, is, that is an incredibly painful anecdote. Do you, because GE is so representative of America, do you see any warning signs in GE's failure to remake itself? In other words, is it just GE's failure to remake itself, or is that a warning sign for the country? Oh, I think it's absolutely a warning sign for the country. I mean, GE was a company that, for example,
2: did a ton of share buybacks. Share buybacks for the layperson is, is when a company comes in and buys up its shares on the open market. And some people, I mean, Warren Buffett, for one, would argue that sometimes if you don't have something to invest in, that's a good use of of cash and capital. But I would say that most of the time, particularly when you're using debt to do that, as the vast majority of companies have in the last few years, boy, talk about a short-term sugar high. You're going in, you're issuing a lot of debt at low interest rates, which were themselves a result of the 2008 crisis, Putting all that money offshore, which is what global multinationals, not just GE, but many of them have done, and then taking cash and giving it back to the richest shareholders in order to bolster stock prices, it's
1: this total shell game. It's really interesting because I've heard the argument, and there's something compelling about it, that those shareholders who get the cash back will then feel free to reinvest it themselves in something that's better positioned. Maybe. But to your point, when you look at how share buybacks have been used to juice executive compensation mm-hmm. by juicing earnings Absolutely. per share metrics, right? And then when you look in the case of GE and you think about where its stock price is now versus where it was when it was buying back these billions of dollars, of, how how is that anything but a waste? Absolutely. And you can see that if you look at
2: overall, not just GE, but the whole S&P, the number of share buybacks, they peak and they kick up the shares but then the next round doesn't do it quite as much and the next round not quite as much it's like you know you need to drink more and more coke in order to get the, the same hike. and you know it's not just about ceo salaries i would actually argue at a broader level when people say well share share price hikes are good for everyone that has a 401k that makes all of us richer well Again, it makes the top 12% that's holding 80% of the stock a lot richer. But how many pairs of jeans, how many cars can rich people buy? I mean, what you start to see is inflation in premium things that rich people want, like real estate in prime cities, like education, where there's a huge bubble right now. And so you start to get these real distortions
1: in very particular areas of the economy. It's also not an integrated approach in the sense that, yeah, a higher share price might be good for people who own the stock. But if the higher share price comes as a result of laying off workers who then don't have it, it's looking at things in isolation rather than looking at the whole picture. right? I wanted to ask you to answer on that note. You raise this very provocative question in your book. What is a company for? I think
2: that a company can't be just for shareholders. Of course, shareholders and investors are important, but I see them as only one stakeholder group. I see workers as being an important stakeholder group, and, you know, Henry Ford would have said that. I mean, I'm, I don't want to glamorize Henry Ford because this was a guy that took shots at union workers from the top of buildings. But but on the other hand, this this notion of Fordism where, hey, you got to pay your workers enough to buy your product is kind of important. I also think that civic society, communities, these are all important stakeholders that companies need to respond to.
1: Speaking of Ford, one of the stories you tell, which is great, I was not aware of McNamara's role in <laughs> Robert McNamara. Of course, we all know him from the best. David Halberstam's The Best and the Brightest, oh, right? One of my
2: favorite books of and, all time. Yeah.
1: And the Flawed Vietnam Strategy. But I didn't realize that he brought that same approach yeah. to Ford and then how that got replicated through American yes. business.
2: Yeah. No, I was stunned about that, too. The The whiz kid thinking, you know, the very thinking really that helped lose the Vietnam War this literal losing the forest for the trees. You know, how many megatons of bombs will we be dropping in this precise area today? Everything chalked up on a graph. And yet... Nobody pulling back and saying, Why are we waging this war? What is the big picture here? That kind of thinking was absolutely brought into Ford, which was run by McNamara at one point, into Harvard Business School, which was also run by McNamara. And all of these sort of little whiz kids that graduated from those institutions went out, and many of them ran some of the biggest companies in the country. And they brought this bean counter mentality to those companies. And you got a situation in which The finance types were constantly overruling the engineering types, and you started to see right around that time a decline in the percentage of R&D that was being spent by large companies and a rise in the amount of financial activities they were doing as a percentage of their business, which has risen since the 80s. That's risen by fivefold.
1: Wow. And you can see the appeal, right? It's easier and more satisfying to think about things in isolation than it yeah. is to try to think about a very messy and sloppy human yeah. big picture, right? Yeah. So it's really interesting because, of course, one of the characters in this that we haven't touched on yet is the Federal Reserve. right? Oh, yes. And I thought it was really interesting that back in 1970, you had this Fed Reserve Chairman Arthur Burns, whose name has just been lost to history, that kind of reje- he rejected this idea, he called it a political hot potato, <laughs> that the Fed should play any role and setting social priorities. But of course it does, right? There was just that piece in the FT by one of your colleagues about how the quantitative easing is the father of millennial socialism. Absolutely. Right, and so talk about that illusion that the Fed doesn't play a role in setting yeah. social priorities because it absolutely does the fed does and i want to say i think the fed
2: comes in for a lot of bashing and in some ways i think of all the institutions they've done the best that they could over the last 10 years they've sort of been the last man standing or in the case of Jenny, the last woman standing that could actually do something without political polarization but the problem is what can the fed do the fed can basically shift interest rates and raise asset prices by changing monetary policy. That is not the same as creating real growth, real productivity. That's not inventing a new product. That's not raising a wage. That's not hiring a worker. That's pouring money into the economy and hoping that asset prices lead to some other shift. And I think we've gotten incredibly addicted to low interest rates. And it takes a real solid Individual, I mean, someone like Paul Volcker, for example, to stand up to the political pressure and say, "Okay, you know, no, we're going to have to raise rates. And here's why. And I I worry that that we didn't do that this time around.
1: What do we do, given that the markets quaked so badly last winter at the threat of rising interest rates? And now you have a president who doesn't hesitate to tell the Fed that they should be doing more quantitative easing. How does that how does that play out? You know, I've been spending a lot of time recently speaking to folks at the Fed and speaking to some of the local
2: governors in particular from Boston. Boston, Dallas, uh, so on and so forth. And some of them are, interestingly, actually starting to go out into the community. This is a little known thing, but the Fed doesn't just have a dual mandate to keep inflation low and to keep employment high. It also has the ability to do community development. So folks like the head of the Boston Fed are going out into Rust Belt communities and trying to encourage entrepreneurship, trying to work with immigrants to start new businesses. I recently had a conversation with the head of the Dallas Fed who told me he spends more time counting up how many... Liquor stores and payday lenders, there are in certain neighborhoods in his area than he does thinking about interest rates because that's what's really important. That's showing him what's really happening in the economy in his area.
1: That is actually really encouraging, although it could be discouraging in the sense that you could argue monetary policy and the Federal Reserve have had to take the place of deadlocked Congress.
2: That's absolutely right. And the risk, of course, is that we get a situation like Europeans have already seen, where if there's a perception, that technocrats, even benign or or incredibly well-meaning ones, are running things rather than elected officials, then that can create a populist backlash itself. That
1: creates its own problem. Yeah. I do want to push you a little bit though on this notion that the Fed has done what it what it can, because you noted in a column that one thing Donald Trump got right is that he understands that monetary policy did more for the markets than it did yeah. for Main Street. I don't know either that the Fed has had much of an alternative, especially right. in the face of an inactive Congress. Yeah, But th- the way in which monetary policy has worked in the last decade is definitely contributed to social unrest. And
2: it certainly raised inequality in the sense that you've got the rich getting richer from the asset price hikes, but no changes in income. I take your point. Listen, I probably wouldn't have done the third round of quantitative easing. I might not have done the second round. I mean, I, I think we knew pretty early on that this wasn't actually going to shift anything on the ground. On the other hand, the Fed was, and this goes back to your point about the Fed being political, the Fed was under pressure, interestingly, from a lot of folks on the left who wanted to keep the easy money going because they thought that eventually it would hike up wages at the lower end. This was kind of part of the fight for 15. A lot of folks in the labor movement were very pro-more QE, lower rates, And indeed, we did finally start to see a little tightness in the labor market at the very end. And that did help, I think, some of these Fight for 15 campaigns and and the idea that we do need a, a higher minimum wage. I just think the fact that you had to throw unprecedented firepower to get that little amount of juice is really telling.
1: One other thing that I think is really interesting on this note of monetary policy and what it's done is that it's also enabled the rise of private equity. (laughs) And that has played a role in financialization as well, and arguably in weakening our corporate sector. For sure. Private
2: equity is the great white shark in the ocean of financialization in some ways,
1: um, you know. These- Goldman Sachs is the vampire squid. Yeah. <laughs> but what happens when the vampire squid meets the great white shark? Oh my gosh, <laughs>
2: that sounds like a movie that Hollywood should do. But uh, one of the, the fascinating bits of reporting that I found while I was doing my book is that in part, because private equity companies were not bound by some of the rules that say a big bank like J.P. Morgan would have been in terms of what kind of housing deals it could do, those firms, the private equity firms like Blackstone, for example, came in after the crisis, picked up large quantities of housing for pennies on courthouse steps while these individuals were going bankrupt, and they became the largest... Owner of single-family housing in America, so Blackstone, a private equity firm, became the largest landlord in the country. That's kind of an amazing thing. I love how Steve Schwartzman, the CEO of Blackstone, too, said that it was a bet on America. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. I'll see. Now that housing prices are falling, we'll we'll see. I'm curious if he's going to offload those portfolios, and then what what that's going to do to the communities where they own a lot of homes.
1: It's so interesting how much of this is still playing out, and why do you think that? is and what brings us to the end of this in other words you would have predicted after the financial crisis that these problems would have come home to roost and yet here we are a decade later so what is it that finally makes us change or that <laughs> that forces us to change well i'll go back to
2: the history that i tried to cover in my book the the history of financialization the most recent bout of it really started in the late 1970s and there wasn't one change that led to where we are today there was 40 changes, 50 changes, all of them in different areas, in tax law, in financial regulation, in the consumer economy, in rules around debt. So it's not like there's a single silver bullet. And after the crisis, as Elizabeth Warren said, we just didn't get the right narrative. I think we got the idea that something's wrong. We have an economy that is exploding, and we don't really have a clear answer why. I think now, 10 years on, we have a clearer answer. And the answer is that we let finance become the game instead of a help meet to other industries. And we let the idea of consumers and their welfare trump the idea of workers or citizens and their welfare. And I think we have to shift both of those things.
1: If you could start the shift, what would be the first thing you could do if you ran the world?
2: Hmm. Oh, my gosh. Um, scary. Well, I would say that we should think about the ways in which some other big, rich countries have done things. So I would look at Germany, for example. That's been talked about a lot in recent years. One of the reasons that Germany did so well following the financial crisis is that it had more of a stakeholder model of capitalism. So in the Mittelstand, which is the southern part of Germany, that's where a lot of their industrial base is. It's kind of like our Rust Belt. When the crisis came, they didn't just lay off everybody all at once the way a lot of American firms did businesses, business leaders, workers, and politicians all got together and said, all right, we're going to share this pain. Workers are going to take some furloughs, but we're going to use that time for retraining. Businesses are going to get some tax breaks if they do that. Government is going to pull back and take a smaller slice of the pie in the interim. And the result in Germany was that by 2010, when the economy globally started to pick back up again, German firms were able to move quickly and grab a lot of business from places like China, where the economy was starting to boom, whereas the U.S., because we had this feast or famine economy, had to restart everything from scratch. You have to retrain people, rehire people, retool, and It's just inefficient, and it's not really sustainable. And so there's a lot of lessons out there. But I think the debate around stakeholder capitalism is a really important one.
1: It's really interesting because for so long, the criticism has been that models like Germany's that involve thinking about something other than the Milton (laughs) Friedman-esque shareholders first, that they're the inefficient ones, Mm -hmm. and that our super turbocharged version of capitalism is the one that leads to efficiency. Mm -hmm. But when you think about it through the lens that you're looking at it through, it's it's not so clear, is it? No. If you move fast, you can break things. <laughs> <laughs> that, and that leads right into your next book. <laughs> thank you. Thank you so much for coming. Thank you. Making a Killing is a co-production of Pushkin Industries and in Chalk and Blade. It's produced by Ruth Barnes and Rosie Stouffer. My executive producers are Allison McLean, No Relation, and Megan Casey. The executive producer at Pushkin is Mia Lobel. Engineering is by Jason Gambrell. Our music is by Jed Flood. Special thanks to Jacob Weisberg at Pushkin and everyone on the show. I'm Bethany McLean. Thanks so much for listening. Find me on Twitter at BethanyMac12 and let me know who you've enjoyed hearing from.
0: The tradition of breaking tradition continues